This is episode 219 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Using Innovation to Change Lives, with Dr. Stephen Stice. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dalon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Steven Stice from the University of Georgia. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on developing novel therapies and new technologies for drug screening, neurodegenerative diseases, animal agriculture, and human biomedicine. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem Cell Technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. Arun, I'm starting the roundup today by talking about something that plagues us all, aging. We're not getting any younger and aging in itself as a, I guess, condition, I wouldn't call it a disease, better to be aging than to be dead, right? Um, it's manifested by waning regenerative potential and that results in declining tissue and organ function but amazingly, um, very promising technology for us vampires out there, there have been some reversal of these aging phenotypes in animal models, at least, um, and in vampires historically. Uh, most notably, as I keep referencing, through the use of this heterochronic parabiosis, right? And that's the system that they use in mice, maybe other animals too. I don't know if they've done that in, in other animals, but in mice, they do it all the time. They hook up the circulatory system of aged and young mice surgically. So they're connected and you get this, you know, uh, sharing of these bloodborne factors. And what's amazing here is that the young blood is capable of reversing a lot of age-related structural erosion, molecular changes in the muscle, bone, liver, and nervous systems. And that's just what, you know, we've looked at and found so far. Um, and although there have been a lot of putative pro-regenerative, pro-youth factors that have been identified. Uh, I think, you know, some of them are still controversial and debated, um, but the factors themselves, at least the candidates have been identified, but the, the understanding of their targets, um, you know, the downstream tissues that are affected and rejuvenated and at what level is not really well understood at all. So when we talk about aging, of course, one thing to think about, and that's why we do what we do uh, in our research and on this show, is stem cells, right? The, the systemic aging is attributed in large part to the impairment and exhaustion of these adult stem cells, organ-specific, tissue-specific, although they may be. Um, and because these resident adult stem cells are compromised by, by aging, it's thought that you know they're a prime candidate for what these bloodborne factors are targeting, but whether or not that's true and to what extent it's true is not, again, not understood. So in this study, we have a, a pretty big group here from a Chinese Academy of Sciences, the Institute for Stem Cell and Regeneration, uh, which was led by Jing Ku, Wei, Wei Ki Zhang, and Guanghui Lu. Also, they're the lead contact, interestingly enough, because he's everywhere, is Juan Carlos Espizua Belmonte, who's not at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, but he always has his hands in studies like this. Um, and what they did as a group there, and a, a lot of work, a real tremendous amount of work, is they systematically analyzed the uh, single cell transcriptomes across the hematopoietic and related immune system, um, which is the hematopoietic progenitors, bone marrow cells, peripheral blood, um, some extra medullary sites like the spleen here. Um, and they also looked at four solid tissues slash organs, the skin, skeletal muscle, brain, and liver. And what they found, as you would expect, of course, is that heterochronic parabiosis rejuvenated the adult stem cells 
across all the tissues and their niches, I should mention. But really in particular, and this is a great insight, um, is that the parabiosis um, uh, really rejuvenated hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. They were the most responsive to this exposure to young blood. Uh, and there was a continuum of changes across hematopoietic and immune cells. Um, and what it ultimately resulted in is a restoration of this youthful, quote unquote, uh, transcriptional regulatory program and restoration of the, of the expression of all those cytokines. Um, and interestingly here, this was, I think, what maybe got it up into cell stem cell, although, I mean, if I'm, if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't think they went really deep on this. They were able to show that if you reintroduce, quote unquote, um, some of the identified rejuvenating factors alone, you know, they were able to uh, alleviate, in this case, the lymphopoiesis decline, okay? So a very specific phenotype, um, if you kind of hack the system. Uh, although technically, I, I wouldn't say that they introduced a factor as much as they knocked out a factor in the context of parabiosis and showed that the parabiosis was no longer as effective. So this isn't yet kind of the secret sauce or, you know, the magic bullet that uh, we can just give people a cocktail and, and rejuvenate uh, their niches. But I think for sure, there's a, a really great resource. I mean, this is a cell stem cell resource here because it gives you a really comprehensive uh, data set with a lot of cells and a lot of information from a lot of tissues um, indicating how perhaps this heterochronic parabiosis mediates its effect and showing some of the you know downstream um, signaling pathways that may underlie that rejuvenation. So a, a great resource, fertile ground for future study, um, and I mean, a huge data set, to be honest. And we always have been interested in this, you know, it's almost mythical this idea of parabiosis and rejuvenation. So it's nice to see some science uh, come in and support it. Yeah, anytime you talk about parabiosis, it captures the public's imagination. It's one of those areas of science that's really caught on and uh, for obvious reason, right? You're thinking about the idea of, of rejuvenation, as you mentioned, and you know, undoing aging and all these exciting things that have a lot of you know, startups, a lot of money being pumped into this. We talk a lot about the different startups that are focused in this particular area, even some stem cell focused startups. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, like you said, this is, I think, first and foremost, a powerful resource. It's a cell stem cell resource for, for a reason, right? The, the data is, a, it's a great data set that you can utilize for other folks who are doing work in parabiosis and looking at particular the impacts of parabiosis on these secreted factors in the blood. Um, I think uh, there are a couple of things to consider here. One, the case with any single cell story, and we're going to talk about more single cell stories in the, the next couple papers in the next segment of the roundup too. Case with any single cell story is the limitation of the cell number, right? You have to have the appropriate number of cells to actually make some of these conclusions when it comes to the secreted factors and ultimately utilizing some of these secreted factors to reverse aging and do some more in-depth mechanistic studies. Okay. So that's one. And they actually directly mentioned that, you know, we have to get more tissues, more cells, and that's the case throughout single cell biology. I think the other thing to consider here, and <laughs> uh, this is something to do with more of the, the, the technique of parabiosis itself, right? What are you doing here? You're actually sewing together two animals and that in itself is an inherently stressful process. Okay. Would that impact the secreted factors in the blood? Absolutely. I think that that's definitely a, a variable, a, ca a caveat to consider. It's not exactly the same as doing say a blood transfusion from, from young to old and seeing what the, the changes in the the transcript the transcriptome is there. It's a it's a stressful process on these mice. Anytime you're sewing two animals together in the form of parabiosis, that's gonna impact the downstream transcriptional phenotypes, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. Um, I would imagine that's a pretty aggressive intervention. But uh, that last part that you touched on, I think, is is interesting to me. It's not the same as a transfusion, right? Um, and that's the question for me that I think next needs to be answered. Maybe it already has, and I'm just not looking deep enough, but like, do you need to sew these animals together? And I would expect that you probably do. It's a, like a continuous um, circulation of these factors that mediates effect. Otherwise, maybe it would be enough just to 
transfuse these older mice. Um, and that leads me to the kind of elephant in the room, medically, scientifically, is I, I'm kind of surprised that there aren't some kind of, you know, uh, amongst the wealthy elite, just harvesting young blood and transfusing it. I mean, it seems like something that people do a lot weirder stuff amongst those wealthy elite, believe me. There's a lot of NAD infusions and people are taking testosterone. I don't know why somebody's not hooked up to an IV with some young blood, <laughs> or maybe they are. You're, you're going down a very dark road here, Daylon. This is definitely not something we are encouraging, but I will tell you, this is it's stuff that's probably happening in the dark alleys and the dark sections of the world. I mean, there are, like I mentioned, this is a hot topic anytime you're talking about aging and uh, reversing aging. So I'll leave it to our listeners to do their own research here, <laughs> but um, that's all I'm going to say about that. So moving on to a, another kind of single cell focused uh, set of studies here, set of story. This is big news. Okay, this is really big news. We're talking about doing single cell and parabiosis and heterochronic parabiosis, but we're going to take a step back and really talk about these four huge papers in science that came out uh, as part of the, the Human Cell Atlas Consortium that a lot of us have heard about. And this is a, an international effort which has basically done single cell in, in a variety of different tissue types in the body, in the human body. And ultimately what they want to do is quote unquote, form a Google maps, all right, a Google maps of the human body. So that you can look at any sort of gene in any tissue with some caveats, as I'm sure Daylon's going to mention here, um, and basically see where your favorite gene is expressed. We've all had that question, right? We've had a gene of interest and we're like, oh, where is this gene expressed? Is it only expressed in my favorite tissue type? And this is a data set. And one of the papers here is, is really uh, a great data set for help to help you answer that question, that exact question, okay? So these four studies were simultaneously published in Science a few weeks ago. Um, they're international teams of researchers that are offering, uh, you know, different single nucleus and single cell transcriptome maps of more than a million different cells, human cells, importantly, across five different cell types and 33 different tissues and organs. So just a tremendous amount of work here. And they uncovered some interesting features, right? Looking at different signaling mechanisms, uh, genetic traits. So I'll, you know, start off by just mentioning the, the names of the four papers. Okay. So the first one is the, I think the the real highlight, the, the crown jewel of these four papers. This is the tabula sapiens, which is this multi-organ single cell transcriptomic atlas of humans. And I was actually playing around with this a little bit before the show. And it's it's a cool online data set. Anybody can access it. You can look at basically this uh, this UMAP, this you know, scatter plot, this cluster plot of different cell types, different tissue types, and see where your favorite gene is expressed. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Um, the next one is a uh, another singles nucleus cross tissue molecular reference map. This is single nucleus, and I think for the important clarification here is some cell types, some tissue types are more amenable to single nucleus RNA sequencing as opposed to standard single cell sequencing, uh, because you know some cells like larger muscle cells and all that they don't tolerate single cell sequencing as, as well. These are just bigger cell types that just don't go through that process as well. So dissecting down to the single nucleus can help get around some of those technical hurdles, okay? Then we have a couple of immune-focused papers. Cross-tissue immune cell analysis reveals tissue-specific features in humans. And then a, a developmental analog of that immune paper, which is mapping the developing human immune system across organs. So these are four titanic papers out there uh, in science that are really focused on single cell, all things single cell, um, international col collaborations between the Wellcome Sanger Institute, University of Cambridge, uh, folks here in, in the States as well. Um, and so, you know, what do they, what do they find, right? So one thing, for example, is they, they tracked blood and progenitor cells in immune tissues and also in embryonic gut and skin. And they found out some beta cell progenitors receive input from their development from immune cells from the gut in addition to the bone marrow. So this is going back to the idea of the niches and the importance of different 
bodily niches and specifying cell development. We've actually talked about this a little bit on the show, okay? Um, so this is important because it can maybe influence how we engineer immune cells out of the body, like, you know, all these different Im immunotherapies that we're talking about. Maybe these single cell maps can help develop better immunotherapies. That's one application. So in the second study, when you were looking at the uh, immune, immune cells in particular, they uh, developed this machine learning algorithm called cell typist to actually automate cell type identification. And they created this immune cell atlas, right? That you know, reveals this relationship between the immune cells and different tissues. Uh, again, one hope is maybe we can use this atlas as a way to develop better cell therapies down the road. Um, also, uh, I got to mention one of the, <laughs> of course, one of the, the titans involved in this particular project is none other than Avi Varegev, who's actually recently moved on to Genentech to take a position as a, a VP of research, but she is really the queen of single cell, as we'd like to, to say. Um, and in the other study, they're looking at uh, the, the tabula sapiens, right, which is the, like I mentioned, the real crown jewel here. Um, led by Steve Quake over at Stanford, 500,000 different cells from 24 different tissues and organs, uh, really a focus on collecting samples from the same donors, which allowed researchers to kind of screen out different background variations such as age. But it's, a, it's just, you know, you just, I, I can only say so much. You really just have to look at the data set. You have to look at the data set, take a deep dive into it, look at your favorite tissue, your favorite gene, see where things are expressed and just play around. And one last thing here, you know, specifically going down to more mechanistic approaches as opposed to, oh, we have just a bunch of data, a bunch of cells to show you. They also show that the CD47 protein, which uh, some different teams at Stanford, like Irv Weissman's group, for example, um, uh, uh, they've, they've shown that, you know, it's implicated in cancer. Uh, it's in the buildup of different arteries, uh, different plaques in the artery walls. CD47 is actually being investigated as, a, as an anti-cancer therapeutic um, pioneered by Herb's lab. Uh, here, they're actually showing that the uh, CD47 could have this dual impact, this dual effect, not only in cancer, but also the buildup of the, the plaques on the arterial walls, again, based on the single cell profiling, Okay. So all different sources to all sorts of things, a few caveats, as I'm sure you'll, you'll talk about, Dalon, but like we're talking about, this is just a huge data set, great roadmap, ideally a Google Maps of the human body. And down the road, certainly there's going to be different versions of this. This isn't, this isn't the end all. This isn't the end of this particular human cell atlas. They're going to keep on coming out with different versions of this, more cells, more tissues, uh, but fantastic start and a great resource for the community. Yes. Amazing resource. A lot of fun just to play around with. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to tap this resource. I can't even tell you how many times, uh, a, a lot. Um, but you said it, I don't know about a caveat, but I will say when you talk about Google maps of the body, I mean, last I checked, we had gonads, you know, male and female, and, you know, even, even some of us that don't identify, sometimes you got gonads most of the time. No testis, no ovary in this data set. I was disappointed to see that. Um, and I'm again, I'm not trying to throw shade on this. Like I said, I'm going to use this resource. And I think that's the best testament to uh, the utility of a thing is whether or not it's used. Um, so it's a win already. Um, I've already been playing with it. But I will say, I think that there's this, I guess they're, they're trying to draw a parallel with like human genome project. Maybe, I don't know. That's the first thing I think of is this monumental effort to do something that'll kick open the door. And I just don't think we're at, at that level. I don't think that really it fills the meets the need that's unmet. I like the effort to, to try and consolidate all the cells and tissues from a single donor. I think that's, that's a really critical thing, similar to the human genome product. You need like a single reference and then you can start looking at heterogeneity between people. But, you know, if you don't have it from a single person, then I, I would argue that maybe what, what you have out there is an aggregate of all the single cell data sets that are already there. You know, maybe it would be close to or approximate the utility of this thing if we just went on geo, took every 10x chromium data set we could find and, and threw it together in one merged library. I don't know, maybe not, and probably not. I, I'll grant you that, probably not. But I just think that that's, that's my caveat there is that it's, it's, 
there's a little bit of redundancy to it. Um, and it's also not totally inclusive. So I, I think it falls a bit short on both ends there, um, which I, I think are minor caveats, if I'm being honest and fair, because it is such a monumental effort. Um, and to have it all done by one, you know, collection, I think is key because you're not dealing with all these other variables to have like a very robust um, QC and, and normalization process, which I presume they did have because it's tough when you're looking at highly variable expression levels of a gene between tissues, you know, something might be expressed bonkers in one place and, and relatively, you know, 5% of that in another tissue, but that 5% could also be critical in that other niche. So I think that there's a lot technically that had to go into leveling the, this data set so that, so that all the cells could be looked at in one place. And that to me is the major accomplishment here is to see all these cells in one map is a tremendous resource uh, and it will be used. That's the key. I agree with you entirely. It's, it's a resource for the community. It's a free resource. It's easy to use. Anybody can pull it up around the world. I've got it pulled up right now on the other half of my screen. Uh, it's, you know, literally they, they simplify things. That even if you don't have experience with Syrah or any of these complex single cell approaches that take a little bit of expertise and knowledge and R and stuff like that to use, you don't have to have that, right? All you need to do is to look at this plot, type in your favorite gene, type in your favorite tissue, and bam, it's there in a couple seconds. That's powerful. And I think another part of this is, is education, right? Bringing this kind of data set uh, is not only useful for the, the advanced scientific community and like PhD level researchers like us, but potentially even, you know, students could use it. College students, high school students, who knows? Like they're learning about genes too. And one of the most simple things of human biology is, you know, figuring out where a certain gene is found and how certain genes are being expressed in the body. So I think this is, uh, it's a tremendous resource, you know, caveats withstanding, as you mentioned, the lack of the, uh, the ovarian tissues and reproductive tissues. Where's the reproductive single cell atlas, Dalen? Are you working on that? Is that, is that, you know, going to come out next week? I Tell better get that. to work, better get there. Cause you know, not a lot of respect <laughs> for the reproductive biology out there in the stem cell field, it seems, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there, Arun. And, you know, again, uh, to emphasize the tremendous value. This is a resource. It tells you everything you need to know about normal, right? About, about tissue in a, in a physiological state. And that's my segue here to our last roundup paper, which is looking at uh, pathophysiology, in this case of the mammary uh, stem cells and resultant cancer. Um, and it's a story about X inactivation at that. Wow, a hodgepodge. Um, so yeah. Accent activation, right? It's the transcriptional silencing of uh, one of the two X chromosomes in female cells, right? Um, and the way this works is that the X inactive specific transcript, also known as EXIST, is upregulated in early development, right? Very early from one of the two X chromosomes, and that coats that chromosome in the exist uh, and leads to a cascade of epigenetic events that impose this compacted chromatin state or silenced state. Um, but exist, it remains highly expressed in, in cells uh, throughout life uh, and is, remains tethered to that inactive X chromosome. But the question has been, do you need the exist clearly developmentally? You need the exist there to coat the chromosome in the first place and initiate this act, uh, this uh, inactivation, but do you need, does it need to stay there uh, to maintain the inactivation? Uh, and that's still debated. Um, long, for a long time, it was thought that it was dispensable. You could get rid of exist after the fact in somatic cells. Uh, and there were studies showing that you delete it and the heterochromatic um, inactivated chromatin, it remains. The X inactivated chromatin, X chromosome remains inactivated, even after deletion of exists. But there have been other studies that used uh, you know, a more, I guess, comprehensive set of genes that had a wider view and more sensitive assay that showed that there can be transcriptional reactivation uh, when you delete um, exist, right? Uh, but you know, does this have disease relevance uh, or relevance to 
biology and somatic cells in adulthood? That question uh, remains open, but there's some evidence to suggest that it does, right? In mice, when you knock out exist, these mice present with impaired maturation of blood lineages, and they get these hematological tumors specifically in females, okay? So that suggests that exist actually is doing something to tamp down expression or to regulate expression in the somatic cells uh, throughout lifespan. And another thing here in the humans, um, it's been shown that there's aberrant expression of exist in breast tumors, right? So all this data together suggests that at least in, the, in some context uh, that maybe the reactivation of these X-linked genes can interfere with cell homeostasis and even elicit uh, carcinogenesis or tumor genesis. Um, so that leads to this study, which was performed by Christophe Guinestier, uh, who's at the INSERM uh, in Paris, and also Raphael Maguelon, who's at the Sorbonne. I'm, I'm trying to work on my name pronunciation there, guys, if, if you didn't notice. <laughs> Uh, doing my best. My apologies. I know I didn't do it right, but I'm trying. Um, anyway, those two gentlemen uh, and their group, they set out to answer this question, whether or not exist function in the somatic cells is relevant to breast tumors. Uh, and what they showed by knocking down exist in mammary stem cells in human, human mammary stem cells, is they showed that, yeah, indeed, you knock out exist, and you get these highly tumorigenic and metastatic carcinomas, right? Um, and that's because in this, with this exist deficiency, reactivate genes, a bunch of genes, but they followed up mechanistically on, on one of these, which is called mediator subunit MED14, we'll call it MED14. And what they find is that that MED14 uh, reactivation and uh, overdose leads to hyperactivation of this transcriptional program in mammary stem cells that makes them less likely to differentiate. Um, and then furthermore, so that's drawing a line between the loss of exist and the behavior of the cells. And then they show that the loss of exist and reactivation of the X chromosome is actually pretty common amongst human breast tumors with a poor prognosis. So, I think all told, this is a, a really nice study that goes, you know, it's got a little bit of organoids, some stem cells in there, um, some CRISPR, it's got all the pieces, but for me, it's really a, a nice demonstration of one, the exists relevance to disease in adults, specifically in cancer, and, and uh, really interestingly in this kind of gender specific fashion. I think it's fascinating, the idea that there may be a whole range of diseases uh, or conditions or whatever, um, cell behaviors in women that may follow from this, you know, pathological or whatever you want to call it, maybe um, benign uh, reactivation of, of the X chromosome. So I think a, a nice little conceptual query there that's got me thinking. Yeah, I agree with you. It's something that I guess we haven't really thought about, or at least I haven't thought about too much, this idea of gender-specific malignancies and cancers, right? Um, you know, X-inactivation, X-reactivation is something that's uh, exclusive to, you know, women, and that's uh, a unique thing that could happen in other tissue types as well, not only just breast tissue. So it'll be cool to see extending these studies beyond into other tissue types, see if there's other forms of that, uh, malignancy based on X-immediate reactivation. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing to consider here is not, it's not just there's sort of like an internal control. That's kind of what I'm going at here. There's sort of a built-in internal control here because men also develop breast cancer. You know, that is one thing to consider here. And obviously, you know, you can't really have this X-mediated inactivation or reactivation in, in, in men, in, in males. Um, so that's perhaps something they could, they could allude to or refer to in the future. But yeah, I agree with you. I think this is a really interesting concept to, for them to look to, into in, in the future. Absolutely. And the male-female thing, I mean, they did say it's, it's really specifically noted in breast uh, cancer, poor prognosis. So exist uh, 
dysfunction is not really a, a hallmark of all breast cancer. But to your point about the male female, what was really fascinating to me, if you just look at the numbers, uh, cancer incidence, all type, is actually two to one uh, male to female. So two, two out of three males versus one out of three females will, will get cancer and non-reproductive, if you exclude reproductive organs like breast. Um, so, you know, that's a really interesting idea of it in itself. And there was work done about four or five years ago now at Dana-Farber by Andrew Lane that looked into this. And the idea was that maybe males were exposed to, you know, riskier lifestyle or increased carcinogenic exposure or whatever. But what they actually found, which was fascinating, is that on the X chromosome of women, there are actually some tumor suppressors that retain expression that continue mm. to be expressed even on the inactive chromosome. So cool. it's interesting here that you have this interplay where here we're talking about, you know, women maybe at increased risk because of exist dysfunction, but inherently it seems like they may have a greater resistance to uh, cancer because of these tumor suppressors that remain active on the X chromosome. So as, as the information continues to emerge, uh, the story just gets more and more complicated. It's difficult to predict, I think, you know, one-to-one -one how who's going to be at risk uh, for these conditions, cancer, namely, just because there's so many, so many factors that play into it. But here's another, I, I think, to consider and, and something, as you said, that maybe we should consider outside of just the breast and other um, tissues and, and, and organs that may be differentially affected in women due to this uh, duality of uh, X chromosome inactivation. So I love it. I love this story came out of cell, strong group from the inserm and the Sorbonne. With that, we are finished with the roundup and we'll push on to the interview. But before we get there, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies, who's conducted a survey asking scientists to help highlight the hurdles to genome editing using CRISPR. You can read that survey report to learn about the most interesting insights on topics such as editing efficiency and downstream viability and how to overcome them in your research. Visit www.stemcell.com slash CRISPR survey results to learn more about that. All right, everyone, for this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, we have joining us Dr. Steven Stice, who is the D.W. Brooks Distinguished Professor and Director of the Regenerative Bioscience Center at University of Georgia, also co-founder and chief scientific officer of Aruna Biomedical. Dr. Stice is a world-renowned expert in the field of pluripotent stem cell biology. His group produced the first cloned rabbit in 1987. That's like 100 years ago now. Uh, the first cloned transgenic calves in 98 and the first genetically modified pluripotent stem cell derived pigs and cattle in 97. In 2001, he directed work on the derivation of three human pluripotent stem cell lines, which were approved for federal funding by the NIH and President Bush. It's a tough nut to crack. He has over 30 years of research and development experience in biotechnology and is a co-founder of several biotech startups, including Aruna, as we said, a company using neural-derived exosomes to treat neurodegenerative diseases. Currently, the Stice Lab is developing novel therapies and new technologies for drug screening and neurodegenerative diseases, as well as developing livestock technology to address the needs of animal agriculture and human biomedicine. Dr. Stice, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to participate in this podcast. Well, it's really an honor and a privilege to have you here. Let's go back to the beginning. It wasn't exactly a hundred years ago, but it's, you know, in stem cell time, it was kind of before stem cells. It's prehistory almost here. Um, back in 1988, you demonstrated that individual blastomeres from an eight cell stage rabbit embryo could undergo nuclear reprogramming and generate clones. Now, this is a major contribution to the long road leading to cloning from an adult cell, Dolly, uh, and ultimately, I think, to the concept and application of induced pluripotency. And young scientists really need to recognize how unlikely this whole concept of induced pluripotency seemed back then. Did you imagine that reprogramming of blastomeres could be extended to adult cells um, and eventually maybe to the complete chemical reprogramming of adult cells 
that we just reported a couple of episodes ago that was in uh, Nature Journal, you know, that's a long way from, you know, blastomeres and cloning going to complete chemical reprogramming. Did you ever imagine that we would reach this point? Well, it was, it was always a dream uh, that this would happen. Uh, nobody, I thought, well, nobody thought back then that you could take just a few re reprogramming factors when Yamanaka uh, initially made the discovery that, I mean, it would be that simple. Um, and, and isn't it true that most things that are true breakthroughs uh, are really simple solutions to a very complex problem? Um, so we were, yeah, very excited about cloning rabbits uh, back in, in when I was in graduate school. Um, Rabbits, you know, the, they're really interesting. And, and why would you clone a rabbit? I often ask that of audiences. Uh, why would you clone a rabbit? And I get a lot of blank stares coming back at me. Uh, but there really wasn't a, a great idea for, for a reason for cloning rabbits, other than mice were so difficult and to clone. And it had been shown at that time that a number of people said it was impossible to clone a, a mouse at that time. And we decided that a rabbit might be more closely related to livestock in the future and potentially other species as well. And, and that's just led to a, a whole lot of breakthroughs in, in cloning technology, but also in the stem cell field as well. So we're, we're very, we were really excited that, that this could be something that could have some great opportunities. And we, our first cloned rabbit was named Zeus. We were better at cloning rabbits than determining the sex of rabbits at a very young age because Zeus turned out to be a female rabbit. But the name stuck and we kept uh, Zeus and, and Zeus had a, a long life. And, and that's a common misconception about cloning that cloning shortens the lifespan of animals. It, it, it truly does not uh, shorten their lifespan. So uh, beginnings as a graduate student that took me all the way through uh, stem cell biology in the future. Yeah, it's always really fun to talk about history, the history of this field and the journey that different folks have taken in this field, because, you know, in my lifetime, there's been such a tremendous evolution in the, the biology and the, the technology associated with stem cell biology. You know, we have, of course, the, you know, reprogramming of iPSCs, which is really just about 15 years ago when that was first discovered. And now we have chemical reprogramming and who knows what's going to happen in the next few years after that, right? I did want to sidetrack for a second and focus on where you've been for the last few decades and that's actually the university of georgia and as somebody who grew up in the south you know just down the road in alabama um, i'm always excited when we get to highlight work that's happening in, in your neck of the woods and there's definitely more to uga than just great football uh, it's an academic powerhouse one of the best public universities in the u.s and a leading producer of road scholars as well uh, what is it about uga university of georgia that's made it a great environment for your work specifically and it's kept there kept you there for two decades? That's a great question. And, and I grew up in the Midwest, uh, went to the University of Illinois for an undergraduate degree, went out east and to Massachusetts for a uh, doctorate degree. And, it, and we started up a company, Advanced Cell Technology, there in Massachusetts. I never thought that I'd move to the South, uh, but the environment here has been really conducive to my way of thinking about developing a technology like stem cells and that it's great to be able to make breakthroughs in the lab, but if we're really ever gonna make an impact in this field, we have to take that technology and commercialize it. And my opportunity here at University of Georgia that was afforded to me was where a, a role where we I could play both as an academic advisor, uh, scientific uh, inventor at the University of Georgia, but also playing this other side of the sandbox on the corporate and industry development side. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been involved in a number of biotech startups and recently Aruna Bio 
in the exosome field. And, and it's, it's to me the opportunity for me to do my best in the lab, but then also translate that technology into something that we hope we can be in clinical trials shortly. And that's holding true for Aruna Bio. We hope to be in clinical trials for stroke uh, in the first half of, of next year. So all of those came together at the University of Georgia, plus the academic powerhouse. Uh, we've had a number of Rhodes Scholars, as you mentioned, but uh, really top-notch individuals that have come through my lab, um, but at, at the undergraduate level, graduate level, and postdoc level that have made a major contribution. And the uh, University of Georgia has a great foundation in biology, uh, complex carbohydrate research, and so forth. So it's, it's, it is um, uh, a great place to do research, but also gives me the freedom to do the type of things that I'd like to do to make uh, this a reality for the industry and, and patients in the end. Yeah, I mean, born and raised in New York City, I, I don't know much about the South, but I have to say that UGA also had a tremendous influence on me. When I, when I first started working with pluripotent stem cells, embryonic stem cells, human. Uh, a great friend and colleague of mine, Scott Noggle, uh, came from UGA in Bresigen and, and helped me derive the first human ES cell lines in New York. It was a really exciting time, you know, finally being able to leverage human material to understand development. That was what it was for us and the therapeutics, of course, um, that are just now starting to be realized. Uh, but it was also really steeped in controversy, right? It was a time where you really had to watch your back working with these cells. Um, Bresogen ultimately generated multiple lines that were qualified for registration with the NIH, as I alluded to there in the intro. Um, but, you know, then IPS cells came and it didn't seem like the, the urgency was there and the attention maybe lapsed a bit. What do you think will come of those tremendous, gargantuan, monumental efforts and expense um, that was made by Bresogen, other collectives like it. Do you think that those and other lines will find widespread use either academically or therapeutically? And if not, is there anything from that whole process, you know, that whole rigmarole uh, of interfacing with the government and academia that can serve as kind of guideposts for our current and future efforts to really bring these, these products to market uh, clinically? Great, great set of questions there. And, and that's a, a topic that I am really very opinionated on. I, I think the field of IPS uh, stem cell technologies in general has been advanced tremendously, first by embryonic stem cell field. Uh, and Scott Noggle is somebody that came through uh, the University of Georgia and then at, at Brisegen, so I know Scott. Um, and the great people that started at Brisagen, I was involved in, in that group as well. And so we're, you know, the, the things that uh, work for IPS cells that are going into the clinics also were, are really standing on the shoulders of IPS, or I'm sorry, embryonic stem cell technology. And those are techniques that we developed very early on I helped uh, hire some of the first scientists that, that developed that technology at, at Brisagen. And, and today they continue to work not only in embryonic stem cells, but also IPS cells. So I, I really see uh, embryonic stem cells um, playing a major role uh, going forward because we know how they work. They're, they're a, a gold standard for developing a stem cell that will develop into neural stem cells and can be used for treatment of Parkinson's. And even today, there's still a lot of interest in taking uh, embryonic stem cells into the clinics as well. So I, I think there's, there's no question that embryonic stem cells has played a major role in the development of iPS cells. But standing alone, I think they also have great opportunities for therapeutic options. And I think the world has learned that we're, we're not deriving new embryonic stem cells every day. It's not uh, the, the thing that everybody was fearful of 
many years ago that, that this would happen. Uh, we're really placing a lot of effort and uh, understanding around what's the best techniques to use with uh, a certain number of cell lines. And, and I think that's, that's held true. There's some real gold standards in embryonic stem cells that people go back and, and use when they want to compare and develop something new for iPS cells. So all kinds of uh, things uh, that I can um, really describe that where embryonic stem cells have played a very important role. Yeah, and even though you know human embryonic stem cells really put human stem cell research on the map and in a lot of ways into the public eye, it's no secret like what we're talking about, the advent of iPSC has really changed the game and changed stem cell biology forever. There's an entire generation of stem cell trainees, like myself included, that rarely get the chance to actually work with human embryonic stem cells, given the ease of derivation of iPSCs and the fact that they can avoid some of these ethical controversies, you know, associated with embryonic stem cells. And so, you know, as a pioneer in human embryonic stem cell research and embryonic stem cell research, what do you think about the field kind of viewing these two cell types as quote unquote equivalent? It's a, what we've kind of been taught in grad school in a lot of ways is that, oh, ESCs, human embryonic stem cells, and human iPSCs are pretty much equivalent. Uh, they're relatively interchangeable for their downstream applications. And when it comes to the training side of things, do you think that working with embryonic stem cells should still be a requirement for trainees in stem cell biology? Because like I mentioned, a lot of us have never touched embryonic stem cells. Well, I, I don't think that it's a requirement. Uh, I do believe that there are things that were... Uh, a lot of literature has been built around uh, human embryonic stem cells in combination with iPS cells. Uh, so I think it's, it's something that, you know, depending on the need and, and the type of study that's going on, I think it's, it's really useful to, to go back and reference those old studies and, and have the history and the historical data around them. Uh, that can be go and that you could then go back and thaw out a human embryonic stem cell line like an H9 and and bring that back and and test it in parallel with some iPS cells. So I think it's very important to to be able to do those types of studies, um, and and I, I think there's just a, a a role for them in particular studies, but not not for everyone and. and I don't think that anybody missed out greatly by not growing up uh, human embryonic stem cell lines, uh, but I do think they play uh, to date, today, and in the future, an important role. Yeah, I, for one, I can say for myself that when Scott and I, mostly Scott, I should say, he was an expert, um, but when we were deriving these lines, there, there was a thing about it where you putting a blastocyst on the feeder layer, there's such a gravity to that, you know, where you're looking at and the implications and all the controversy surrounding it. So I don't think it's at all a requirement, but that there was something about that experience that really made you feel how precious it was and how you really had to be on point and not um, diminish the potential of this tremendous opportunity. But here we are now moving forward, right? Uh, the translational applications of, of these cells that were so steeped in controversy are myriad. I mean, coming more every day. Um, <clears throat> one of the many lines of inquiry uh, along the translational track of yours is extracellular vesicles, so-called exosomes, derived from neural stem cells to be used for treating neural injury. Do you think the application of a cell-free regenerative product that is stem cell derived will find an easier path to market from a kind of regulatory standpoint, I guess, um, if not other uh, standpoints. Um, wh what are the obstacles uh, you think to, to bring those to market? How do they compare to cell products? Well, once again, uh, I think part of the answer to that is, is the paving of the uh, regulatory process with stem cells in general. So the groups that at FDA that regulate stem cell therapies are also regulating exosome therapies. And many of the uh, 
and that allows us to build on, on the opportunities that uh, were afforded uh, stem cells in the therapeutic option. We really think that to answer your question directly, exosomes are the answer. Um, they don't form tumors. You don't have to worry about any of the issues around this, uh, injecting a cell that may have other effects in the body. Uh, we equate it to really, instead of, of having the, the battleship, you have the fighters that go in directly and attack the disease that, that is in question. The exosomes are small and uh, can pass the blood-brain barrier much easier than a, a cell type can. So for us in the neural field, uh, ability to, to administer a drug intravenously or intranasally or some other uh, very systemic route of administration versus a direct injection of a stem cell into the into the brain uh, or central nervous system makes a whole lot of sense. It may not make uh, sense for all um, stem cell therapies and comparing that to exosomes, but something that crosses the blood-brain barrier readily and uh, with minimal side effects uh, and, and can direct uh, that therapy to the brain just has all kinds of opportunities, not only as a therapeutic uh, on its own, but since they're a master communication system between cells, exosomes or extracellular vesicles can carry payloads, such as uh, small molecules, uh, um, nucleic acids, uh, also proteins can get into the exosome, uh, loaded into it, and then co-administered into the, into the patient and have a great effect not only the exosome, but also the payload that they are delivering. And it's a really one-two combination that has multiple opportunities for, for therapeutic options in the future. Um, we're, we think it's the time is now. There are companies in the exosome field that are in clinical trials. We think it's just, uh, uh, just we're just at the cusp of taking a stem cell exosome and getting into the clinics with them. Yeah, I think it's a field in exosome biology with tremendous potential and has really taken off, especially on the translational side within the last decade or so. And speaking of translating some of that exosome work, you're actually the co-founder of a bunch of different startups in biotech, including Aruna Bio, great great name, by the way. Um, it's focused on the development of a neural exosome delivery platform and a pipeline of novel neural exosome therapies for the treatment of different neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, Huntington's disease, as well as stroke. And like we talked about, this is a bit of a different approach to what a lot of the cell therapy focused treatments are doing in terms of treating neurodevelopmental disorders, instead using exosomes as opposed to the cells themselves. But speaking more broadly, when it comes to the biotech side of things, what really fuels your passion for being involved in biomedical startups. And I ask because a lot of the trainees, you know, more and more of our trainees are considering the jump from academia into biotech. I think it's a, it's a bit of a shift in terms of, you know, the, the, the interests and the passions for trainees, a lot of trainees these days, they see a lot of potential in biotech and a lot of translational potential as well. Right. Uh, and it's nice to have the perspective of somebody who's really truly translational in their work. So tell us what you think about that. I think there's only a few opportunities to replace yourself. And, and I mean that in the sense that we shouldn't be just training people the, to replace ourselves because, I mean, there's just that few limited options for training new academics uh, to come in. People that have great passion for academia should, should stay in that area, but there are more and more uh, trainees that really want to get connected with the industry. And we uh, offer that opportunity because we have a startup uh, in next door. And many of the students uh, interact with the employees at Aruna. Um, they can see what uh, it's like to be in a small company. So having those, you know, opportunities, internships, informal internships, I think is really important as, as we train students today. I used to think, well, we should focus on publications at, at some level. But my 
thoughts change considerably um, as we think about it further. We need to train the next set of or generation of scientists, but we really need to have them fully equipped so that they can go out and, and get into the uh, technology immediately. That means they need to understand patents. They need to understand what's important in developing a product. It's not just the bench science. It's the company as well that the finances are so important. We uh, This technology costs so much to develop into a therapeutic. They have to understand that it, the time is money um, and you have to develop things quickly. And, and it's not uh, something that you can take a lifetime to develop. It's just as, as something that we need to develop it quickly in order to develop it for the industry, but also for the patients. We want to get something in there uh, into patients quickly. And I think that's what drives a lot of trainees today is that you know it's interesting to ask certain questions about science and stem cells allows that to happen. But also they wanna to get to a point where it can be used and translated into a, a therapeutic. And, and I think more and more people understand that that requires some kind of business activity, whether it's a startup or a license to a large company. And we afford students that opportunity here to, to see that side of the uh, development of a technology and, and provide that uh, opportunity for them. So it's, it's really important. We do that in conjunction, University of Georgia with Georgia Tech and Emory uh, in a major NSF funded grant that we have uh, called CMAT. And, and that's a great opportunity to train uh, students that have direct interaction with industry. Yeah, I think it, it follows from a, a kind of sea change in, in our field that is reflective of, I think, the great progress. I remember when, when we were just starting, it was a lot of hope. And, and I mean, best case, you come up with something great. And then, like you said, you license it out. But now, I guess, with this newer generation, there's really an expectation. You know, it's like we, we know these cells are going to work and we've got to provide the deliverables. So uh, it's exciting for me to see this sea change. I think a lot of people cast it as like, oh, because there's no room left in academia, you know, there's a surfeit of postdocs and no academic positions. But the reality I think is that the, there's more opportunity and not just in human therapeutics too, right? Because there's all these other applications of, of stem cells and the field, some that are, you know, directly related to biomedicine, but some that aren't, you know, you. You've been uh, active in seeking practical applications of stem cells and cloning in livestock, human pig chimeras and genetically modified pigs that enable xenotransplantation of vital organs are just some of the really mind-bending advances that have been made in recent years. Uh, how far do you think we can take these applications for, for biomedicine? Um, also, you know, this, this whole idea of, of uh, you know, uh, cultivating meat you know, so it seems like there's a whole world out there where stem cells are, are, are applicable. How far do you think we're going to take that? I'm always amazed at the new things that, that come up and, and how we can use the technologies. And, and that's what really gets me really excited. Uh, you know, I, I never thought in the beginning when we were cloning animals that there'd be applications beyond just uh, the agricultural application. But it turned out to be the first applications were in the pharmaceutical area. And we developed a relationship with Genzyme to produce pharmaceuticals in the milk of, of goats and, and cattle. And that was done through a cloning process. We could genetically engineer uh, a cell uh, type like a fibroblast cell and then make transgenic animals through the cloning process. So that was a turn I never thought that uh, we, we would take uh, at the beginning, but it's now probably the best way to use uh, the technology and, and the biomedical aspects. And now I see a, another 90 degree turn where some of those technologies are coming back to the food industry. Um, some of the uh, most recent things that I've heard about is uh, these animals that have been developed for 
transplantation, uh, we've knocked out a number of the uh, antigens, um, gal knockout animals that make them more receptive for transplantation. Well, now they may be more uh, a better source of food for people with allergies uh, to, to food and, and some of the reactions that happen to certain uh, types. So I never anticipated something like that, but for me, that's the most exciting thing is the unanticipated uh, opportunities that, that come about with a, a base technology like cloning or stem cells or exosome therapy. So in, in the future, you know, it's hard to predict. Uh, we think there's great opportunities for therapeutic options with stem cells, but more importantly, exosomes. But there might be something beyond exosomes that will come from this technology. And I'm, I'm certain that there will be. Um, what it, it will be is another question. Yeah, you never know what might be just around the corner, right? And I guess we'll get close to wrapping things up with the, another application, uh, another large animal application. We actually read up on a collaboration between your group and the Zoo Atlanta, where you're actually preserving the skin cells and the reprogramming iPSCs potentially of a variety of different species for the downstream production of sperm and egg. Right? So this is for the preservation of endangered species, a really important concept. I feel like this is a pretty unique application of stem cell biology, like what we've been talking about. It's actually taken off across a lot of different places in, in, in the country and around the world too. I remember recently talking to, to Gene Loring in San Diego about this as well. Uh, so tell us about how this collaboration came about and where things stand right now. The collaboration with Zoo Atlanta really came from uh, a student's interest in my lab that's now a full professor at the University of Georgia, Frank West, Dr. Frank West, who, who initiated that uh, collaboration with the zoo and allowed us to, to take samples and grow up the, the fibroblast cells that then we could reprogram. The, and now we're, we're banking those cells the, the interesting part of that is that, again, we don't know where that will end up, but there's great opportunities to, to take that technology and apply it to preservation of, of new uh, species. But also, you know, there's a lot of work now taking iPS cells and, and turning them into gametes. Uh, Dr. Chaz Easley here at the University of Georgia has developed with uh, people at Emory, uh, an ability to derive uh, gametes from uh, human iPS cells and embryonic stem cells. Not all the way yet, but very close to, to getting something there. So thinking of that in, in fertility treatments, but also for testing compounds that may have an effect on the human reproductive uh, system and gametes. So we can use Again, uh, in unpredicted ways, technology that we've developed for animals and turn that into something that's relevant and, and useful for, for human applications. Um, there's a number of groups out there interested in, in preserving uh, animals and, and we're losing more and more species every day. Uh, without those banks, it'll never be possible to bring them back. Um, so it's really important to bank those tissues and be able to develop them into uh, uh, stem cell lines. Uh, we had uh, advanced technology. I can say we did something with cloning where we could take a, a cow egg, transplant it with a Gower cell that, that's a hoof, another cloven hoof animal that's endangered and be able to use a, a, an existing source of oocytes or eggs to turn that into um, uh, a, a new uh, cloned animal from a, an endangered species. So again, um, um, and there's all kinds of, of branches where this technology can take us and that will help endangered species and animals in general. Yeah, I love the idea that all the crowing that was done about, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, going to make the ethical argument. People have their position and I respect it, but it's ironic to me that all the, the terrible things that were being done with, with stem cells and destruction of embryos. And, and here we are, you know, decades later, sure. But it seems like stem cells are really 
going to save the world. I mean, that might be overstating it, but definitely contributing to you know conservation, as you just described, and sustainability maybe with the meats from stem cells. So I, I would I would like to reflect on that for just a minute before we move on and to finish. Uh, we have to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. I got to uh, modify the first. It, it says, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? But I think in this case, you do so many things. If you weren't a scientist, entrepreneur, inventor, CSO, et cetera, what's left? I don't know. What would you be? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I think what I enjoy most out of science is, is answering questions, the curiosity, but also putting things together and building them. So when I think about that and, and what I do in my spare time, you know, I, I love puzzles. If I could be a professional or modeler, uh, that, that would be great. Um, not in the computer modeling sense, but putting models together, um, but, or, or as a Mason, uh, uh, we've got a number, uh, We've got landscape around our house that needs walls, and I've built a few uh, landscape walls around them. I love doing that. If I didn't have a bad back and I wasn't as old as I was, um, um, that may be something I, I'd do. But, um, you know, I love building things. I love to see how um, we can put pieces of things together to make something bigger. Um, so in, in that sense, I'd love to do uh, anything like that in the future. I feel you on that, Doc. I'm the same way, puttering around. If it weren't for my ailing back, I'd be a lot more active, much to the chagrin of my wife with all my home projects that most of the time don't end so well. Finally, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given, either professional or not? Yeah, I think it's it's a, a question that I get asked often. And I I think the simple one, the most straightforward one is, um, you can do well by doing good. And, and I, as we train our students today, uh, think about uh, the good you can do with the, the technology, but also being able to translate that into technologies that are useful. You can develop wealth um, beyond just monetary wealth, uh, but a number of different ways in which you can uh, really benefit and, and, and profit in your life uh, from this. So not speaking just about monetary aspects, but doing well by doing good, uh, I think is a great motto to follow. And, and I've tried to follow that uh, in my career. Well, you've certain, certainly done uh, a lot um, and you've done very well at it. Uh, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts and your views and your experience with us. Uh, I'm sure our listeners can benefit from the real deep knowledge you have and firsthand experience over the course of decades. So really appreciate it, Dr. Stice. Well, thank you for having me on, on your podcast. And um, uh, anytime I can be of help, let me know. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We'll be back with an episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks again for listening. Thank you.